Uh, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings chapter 14. We'll be in verses 1 through to 18-ish tonight. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally cool. Theoretically, it'll be on the screen behind me. I've never actually turned to look to see if it is on the screen behind me. I'm just trusting that it is. Uh, gosh, uh, probably about four years ago, I was in California on tour with a band that I was playing in, and I don't know if you've made the hike from the East Coast to California. I'll tell you that it's really exciting going up the state of Florida. It's kind of exciting by Alabama. It's not exciting at all by Texas because Texas takes like three days to get through. And however cool the road trip felt when you started it, it all coolness is gone. It's just miserable. And we had made the hike from Tampa, Florida to Los Angeles, California in like three days. Um, driving all night, stopping only to play shows and use the bathroom and get more gas station food. Uh, so we reached California in a pretty sorry state in terms of like our sleep habits, uh, our emotional well-being, our friendships. Uh, we had <laughs> screamed at each other many a time. And our van essentially became this mobile motel where if you weren't driving, you were sleeping. And on one such drive, we're leaving Los Angeles, and me and my brother and my friend Will were, were all asleep, and our buddy Doug is driving. And if you don't know Doug, you should know this about Doug. Doug is the fittest human being I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, he is obsessed with working out, and so in going to California, he had a couple goals. One of them was to just see the places that Arnold Schwarzenegger had once walked, which in his mind was everywhere in California. Um, two was to go to Muscle Beach, which is sort of this thing in LA where I guess people go work out. Uh, three was to go to every other beach that he could find in California to show off his incredible physique. And so we're sleeping in the van, and Doug, unbeknownst to any of us, sees a sign that just says beach with an arrow on it. And he just goes. Doesn't ask us, doesn't consult us, just goes. And this sign takes him to another sign, to another sign. All of these at this point are dirt roads, by the way, in California. We have no phone signal, no GPS. Again, we're all asleep, we don't know this. Until Doug finally gets to the beach that he's followed the signs to. And we wake up to the van stopping. And I kind of open my eyes, where are we, Doug? We're at the beach, I followed the signs. Great, cool, what beach is it? I don't know, I just followed the signs. So he rolls the windows down, and at this point, I'm still laying on the floor of the van, so I can't see anything. And we're immediately swarmed by flies. And then the smell of dead fish. And at this point, I sit up, because I'm like, what sort of beach has Doug taken us to? And it's a wasteland. I mean, it, I, I, for a moment, thought that we'd actually been in a car accident, and we'd all died and gone to hell. Because this is the most frightening place I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, it is flat. There's some sort of body of water, but it's definitely not a beach. Uh, we kind of get out and we walk up to the shoreline and there's thousands of dead fish. We look kind of to our left and our right and there's motels and there's trailers, but they've all been burnt like they're on fire. They're all abandoned. Uh, there's children's toys just strewn across the beach. So our first thought is Doug's brought us out here to kill us. Like this is an elaborate way to, to kill us and, and hide the bodies. Our second question is, what on earth happened here? And why are there still signs telling people that there's a beach this way? So what we found out is that Doug had inadvertently stumbled upon a place called Salton Sea. 
that you may or may not have ever heard of. It didn't used to go by that name. And in the 50s and 60s, Salton Sea was a ski resort. It was this man-made lake uh, that people would take their boats out on and people would go skiing and there was this thriving tourist industry, but it was also downstream from farmland. And so year in and year out, it rained around Salton Sea and all of the pesticides washed into the sea and they increased the salination of the water to the point that it killed everything in this lake. It's not really a sea. It's a poorly chosen name. So it killed everything, hence the thousands of dead fish. Uh, and then it killed the tourist industry because nobody wants to go to the place with thousands of dead fish. And now it's this burnt-out ghost town we stumbled upon by accident. We're, we're in the book of First Kings, um, and we're walking essentially through the decline of Israel, the implosion of this nation that God chose to be a blessing to the nations around it. And it's interesting that, that we're getting to this point where Kings gets its name from because it's just king after king after king after king, and we're not going to walk through all of them because they basically all do the same terrible things over and over and over again. But at the end of each section, the author of Kings, who doesn't give his or her name, uh, he, he or she says, uh, if you want to know more about this king... You can read about it in the court records of the nation of Israel, the court records of Judah. You can read about it over here, which should sort of cause us to, to realize or at least consider the fact that the author of Kings is documenting and writing about something not as it happens, but many years after it's happened. Uh, they're, they're writing about these lives that have come and gone and come and gone for maybe 100, 150 years. They're not writing to people as they live through these events. They're writing to people who are still in the car after the wheels have fallen off, who are asking the question that we asked at Salton Sea, what on earth happened here? How did we get to this place where there's dead fish everywhere and we're being swarmed by flies? But for Israel, it's how have we ended up outside of our homeland in captivity as slaves? What happened to this promised people of God? How did we end up here? It's the question that they're asking. The author of 1 Kings says, here's how you ended up here. We started with Solomon. We moved to Jeroboam. After Solomon's idolatry, uh, this man named Jeroboam meets a prophet named Ahijah. And Ahijah says, God is going to give you the kingdom of Israel. And it's going to be awesome if you will simply keep his commandments. Walk in obedience. Jeroboam hears the word of the, God, the, word of the Lord spoken to him through Ahijah. Uh, and goes and does the opposite. Instead of keeping the commandments of God, he begins to create for himself idols, and then he builds altars, and then he appoints priests so that people can come and worship the idols rather than worshiping the God who just gave him the kingdom. And so God speaks to him a second time through an anonymous prophet from Judah who says, this is not going to work for you. This whole cult of the golden calf, this whole priesthood that you've established, it's not going to last. Jeroboam stretches out his hand against the prophet. His hand withers at the slightest sign of repentance. God relents, restores his hand. And then we get to this really strange passage that we spent last weekend, uh, where this prophet who once spoke to Jeroboam breaks the word of God, ends up getting killed by a lion because another prophet lied to him. It's this bizarre passage of scripture. But we left off at verse 33. Because after all of this has happened, after God has spoken to Jeroboam once promising the kingdom, spoken to Jeroboam again saying, hey, this idolatry thing is not going to work out for you. 
And even after Jeroboam has heard all of the weird stuff that we talked about last week, verse 33 says, after these things, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. He made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. God speaks once, God speaks twice. He hears everything that's happened with the prophet that just spoke to him, and he doesn't stop. He just keeps going. Which brings us to chapter 14. We're told that around this time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. Go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said to me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and she went to Shiloh. She came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. But the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he's sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But Ahijah said to her, her, uh, Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, and as she came in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? I am charged with unbearable news for you. So this is the scene. We don't know how long after the weird prophet getting eaten by a lion, but not actually getting eaten by a lion event of last week. We don't know how long has passed. But Jeroboam just keeps right on going. Keeps right on worshiping idols. He starts appointing priests to help people worship idols. He keeps all of the sacrificial things going. And his son ends up sick. And so he decides to go back to the beginning. To, to go back to the first person who talked to him, who set him on this track, the first person who told him, you're going to be king over all these people. Because it's really one of the only people in his life who said something to him that's actually proven true. So he says, we're going to go back to the prophet that I met all those years ago when I was younger, and we'll see what he says about what's going to happen to this child. This, this is a day and age without doctors, without medicine, uh, without you being able to just uh, go to Tampa I almost said Tampa Covenant, that's a church. If your kid's sick, don't take them to Tampa Covenant. Take them to Tampa General Hospital. (laughs) You're not able to do that. The the question is we watch the baby, we pray for the baby, we do our best and we see what happens. But that's not enough. So he says, let's go back to that guy who told me I was going to be king and see what he says. But he, he doesn't himself go back. He sends his wife back. And he doesn't send his wife back as she is. He tells her to dress up and pretend to be somebody else which is sort of a, a peculiar approach to things, but here's, here's what I think is going on in Jeroboam's heart. He knows that the life that he's led has brought him to this point. He knows that the idols that he's worshipped, the way that he's led these people has brought about this sickness in his son. And he knows that if he goes to the prophet, the prophet's words are going to be, unless you repent, your child's going to die. Jeroboam doesn't want to do that. Jer- Jeroboam wants to have his son and his idols. And so in his mind, he thinks to himself, well, if I can just trick the prophet into saying something nice about this anonymous sick baby, maybe I can keep my idols and my son. So I don't know what his wife dresses up as. I don't know if she dresses up as a peasant. I don't know if she dresses up as a a queen from another nation. But she goes to Ahijah in an attempt to trick him into telling her and Jeroboam, by extension, what they want to hear, 
without calling them to change anything of what they're doing. You know, it's interesting that even after everything that has happened in this man's life, in his heart, he, he says, I'm not going to go to the priests that I appointed. I'm not going to go to the gods that I worship. I'm going to go back to this God. But what does he think about this God? He thinks that he can dress his wife up in a costume and trick him. That this is the sort of God who doesn't see, who doesn't hear, who doesn't know. He thinks that this sort of God that he's about to approach to this prophet is just like the idol that he has in his living room who doesn't know what he does as soon as he shuts the door. A.W. Tozer is this famous uh, writer from the last 50 or 60 years, and he has this line that he's become well-known for, uh, that idolatry is ultimately entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It's so common for us to think of idolatry as, as what we said before, which is burning incense to statues, uh, bowing down before altars, all of the things that you see in 1 Kings. And by that extension, none of us are idolaters. But I think Tozer's definition is right. It's not just worshiping other gods. It's thinking about the one true God in ways that are so far beneath who he actually is that you're functionally worshiping another god. And this is what's happening with Jeroboam. He's approaching Yahweh. He's approaching the God of David. But this is a God who's blind, who's stupid, who's ignorant, who can be outsmarted by a costume. It's not the God of Israel. Even in his death, even in the end of his life, he's still making idols. By, by Tozer's definition, we're all idolaters. Because we all in our minds, in one way or another, we have ideas about God, even as Christians, that are unworthy of him. We, we think things about God that are so far beneath what he said about himself that we are functionally dishonoring him with our imagined picture of who he is. So for some of us, we've thought about God and taken very seriously and rightly so what the scriptures say about the love of God. And he is so loving and so kind that he's functionally this sky grandpa that would never say anything mean to us or make us cry or tell us we did something bad. And I don't, I don't want to detract from the love of God because we're told that God is love in the scriptures. That's entirely true. But this God who is love will also judge the world. And so if the God that you have in your mind is one who will never actually patch judgment against sin, I would argue that he's not actually a loving God either because he doesn't care about what's going on in our world other than to affirm it. But you also have in your mind an idol. You do not have the true God in your mind if the God that you conceive of when you say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would never actually pass judgment. You are just like Jeroboam. But we can err on the opposite side of this because I, I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't some of us in this room who have so taken in the harsh passages of Scripture about the judgment of God. Maybe you were one of those people who was horrified by the left-behind books in your youth, like me, sat up having nightmares about the rapture. You're terrified of the judgment of God, and God in your mind has become such a tyrant to be feared that he could never be a father to be loved and loved by. And no matter how spiritual you might feel by thinking of God as being wrathful and that causing you to walk in this terrified sense of holiness, you have in your mind an idol. 
It's just as dishonoring to God as the person who thinks that God would never pass judgment if you live in constant fear of God's judgment without seeing him as a father who loves you. Jeroboam has in his mind an idol, a God who can be deceived by dressing his wife up in a costume. But it doesn't work. She walks into the room, and Ahijah heard the sound of her feet. And she came into the door. He says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go, tell Jeroboam. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart, doing all that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you. You've gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens will eat. The Lord has spoken it. Arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, your child will die. All of Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam. The Lord will strike Israel, Israel as a reed is shaken by the wind in water. He will root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates, because they have gone and made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. It goes on in verse 17 to say, Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, came to Terza, and as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. This is a shocking portion of scripture, but it's worth saying that the English, specifically the ESV and the NIV, actually make it less shocking than what the original Hebrew says. Uh, so if you found this unsettling to begin with, you should read the King James Version because this is one of the few instances in all of the history of anything that the King James is actually more right. And I, I don't want to bore you with the contents of it, but let me just throw this out as maybe a bit of an aside. The language that God uses to pronounce judgment against Jeroboam would get your CD pulled from Christian bookstores. Uh, the language that God uses to pronounce judgment against Jeroboam would never make it into God's Not Dead, part 45. <laughs> and if Christian culture is somehow more biblical in its language than the Bible itself, maybe we've got a problem. I would just say that. But in all of this, in, in this heavy, terrifying, weighty prophecy against Jeroboam, his wife says absolutely nothing. She sits in silence. There's this warning that when you enter the city that your family is in, your child's going to die, and she walks back in silence, and as soon as she crosses the threshold, the child dies all in silence. She says nothing. Jeroboam says nothing. And here's what would be uh, tempting for some of us, is to see that as some sort of like an act of faithfulness, an, an act of sort of Calvinistic stiff upper lipism. Right? God's ordained it, and that settles it. I'm not trying to bash you if you're a Calvinist. But it's easy to see this as, as some sort of a noble 
this is, this is my lot and I'll accept whatever God gives me and, and here we are, it sucks, but here we are. But I actually think the silence of Jeroboam's wife is, is not, uh, it's not a tally in her favor. It's actually a sign of her faithlessness. It's actually a sign of her foolishness. It's not a sign of her resolving to receive whatever God gives her as just punishment for her sin. It's a sign that she doesn't actually believe in the mercy of God. Because right around this time, from Jeroboam's kingdom, there's a man who's also heard something from God. He says, I, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell the people in Nineveh that in three days their city is going to be destroyed. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard of him. His name's Jonah. He goes in the opposite direction, and he gets swallowed by a big fish, and there's a VeggieTales movie about it. <laughs> but eventually, Jonah gets to Nineveh. And he says to Nineveh, you have three days and your city will be destroyed. There's no escape clause. There's no, if you do this, things will get better. It's just three days and your city's done. Kind of like this warning that's spoken against Jeroboam's wife. When you get home, your child's going to die. Nineveh's response is the exact opposite. Nineveh's response is, we're still going to repent. We're still going to turn. We're still going to plead with God. The, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Maybe, maybe God will actually stay his hand. Maybe this won't happen. It might not. He might still kill us all. But let's try. Let's, let's, try. let's at least repent. Let's at least go, bef go before God. There's this crazy text in Nineveh where it says that the people of Nineveh all fasted and the animals. Like, can you imagine telling your dog you're not eating today because you're sinful? and you need to repent or we're all going to die. Both faced with this terrifying word from God, promising destruction, the king of Israel does nothing in silence. The wicked people of Nineveh, who are awful, go look up Nineveh history. They say, well, let's at least try. The silence of Jeroboam's wife is not some sign that she trusts the sovereignty of God. It's a sign that she's utterly faithful in the, faithless in the mercy of God. And I would venture to say that there are an awful lot of us in this room who walk in a similar silence. Week in, week out, there's sin that we are entrenched in. There's bitterness that we've carried there's anger that we haven't let go. There's addictions that we've kept to ourselves. And we walk in silence and carry death across the threshold. Can I just tell you that's not how the people of God deal with their sin. The people of God are more like Nineveh than Jeroboam. Where we take these things that we wrestle with, this conviction that God's laid on us, and we bring it to one another and we say, I need prayer, I need help. I need you to encourage me. I need accountability. We don't carry the silence of death across the threshold, but we say, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe he'll show us mercy through his people. But it's interesting that this whole situation has actually happened once before in the history of Israel. This is not the first time that these events have transpired. About two generations before Jeroboam, there was another king whose sin caused his son to be stricken with an illness. And the prophet said to that king, your son is going to die for what you've done. But this king's response was prayer, 
fasting, repentance, pleading with God. This, this was David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it's interesting to me that in the middle of all of this uh, criticism, all of this judgment that God passes against Jeroboam, perhaps the most devastating line is in verse 8. He says, you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments, followed me with his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. You've done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself God's metal images. I've been fairly honest with this, about this in the last week. Um, I've become like only slightly obsessed with this NBC show, This Is Us. I slightly obsessed. I mean, I've watched 25 episodes since last Friday and have cried myself dehydrated. <laughs> and without, without ruining anything, I'll say that there's, there's, a, there's a father figure in this show that, that sort of casts his shadow over the whole of the rest of the show. His children are always comparing themselves to their father or their spouses or their significant others to the father. He's kind of like the Dumbledore of NBC family rom-coms. Um, he's this figure that's larger than life that always elicits comparison. Why aren't you more like such and such? And David functions in that role throughout the Old Testament. Once David appears, the question is, who's going to be like David? When will there be another king like David? Why aren't you more like David? David was the greatest king. I hope we have another one like David. And I'll just tell you that if the Old Testament ends and terminates on itself, it's a tragedy. There's, there's nothing terribly optimistic because the question keeps arising, when will there be another king like David? And the answer is, hopefully in the future. Maybe it's this guy, maybe it's this guy, maybe it's this guy. Oh, maybe not. But the, the Old Testament doesn't end in Malachi. The, the Old Testament ends in the Gospel of Matthew, or rather, turns over into the gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins his gospel in this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This question resounding throughout the pages of the Old Testament, when will there be someone like David? Jeroboam was not it. Rehoboam was not it. The kings after it were not it. When will there be another person like David? And Matthew answers that. Here's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he, he, he launches into the parts of the Bible that we skip. If you've ever tried to do the Bible in a year plan, normally it's either in the, the Levitical laws about what to do with like the inner parts of a sacrifice or the genealogies. It's where you give up on reading through the Bible. And Matthew has this really lengthy opening genealogy where he just lists person after person after person. It's in Jesus' lineage. And I... I get it if you want to skip over it, but, but Matthew's actually screaming something there that would have been obvious to his initial readers that's not so obvious to us. Um, you see it throughout the Bible. There's this deep sense that numbers mean something, uh, that they have significance, that, that patterns mean something. So God creates the world in seven days, that Israel wanders through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the, in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days. Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days. Jesus is in the heart of the earth for three days. All these numbers have significance. And one of the things that Jewish people would do in Matthew's day is that they would assign numbers to letters, and then the, the numbers uh, would be added up uh, and sometimes used in the place of names. 
So there's actually this graffiti that, that we found in sort of Israel, and it says, I am in love with 616 or 656 or something like that. Okay, that's not like a prison cell number, right? That's somebody whose name has been converted to numbers. It's called gematria, gematria. This was a common thing. Well, so David's name in Hebrew is three letters. The numbers associated with David's name are 644. Four. Uh, rather, it's 464, which adds up to 14. So 14 was sometimes seen as a synonym for David. Now, look at what Matthew does in his gospel. He begins by saying, this is the genealogy of Christ Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he wraps up his lengthy genealogy that you would skip during your Bible in a year project and says, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. From the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations, 14, 14, 14. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he says over and over and over again, David, David. David, the person you've been waiting for, the question that the Old Testament asks, when will there be another king like David? This is the answer. This is it. What Jeroboam was not, Christ Jesus is. God's criticism is you were not like David, and I will cut off your kingdom because of it. Matthew begins his gospel by saying, this is the true son of David, and his kingdom will have no end. It's not so much that David is the one who casts the shadow over the Old Testament as David is the shadow cast by the person of Christ, the true king. So God comes in judgment against Jeroboam. He cuts him off. You're not like David. Thank God that our Bibles don't end in the Old Testament, but they begin with Matthew saying, here's somebody who not only is like David, but David calls him Lord. He is the true king.